the seven chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras. And now, your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, the show where we provide you ancient wisdom, inspiring stories, and action steps that will help you transform your life. If you are new to our show, then I want to give you a warm, warm welcome because I know that without a doubt, you have been divinely guided over here. And there's a message for you on today's episode and you're going to really enjoy it. But before we dive in, I've got a quick announcement. If you are curious about the chakras and are wondering whether this practice, this ancient practice is going to transform your life, then you must attend the online live workshop that I'm hosting this Thursday. I'm going to be talking about the human energy body and the energy pathways that are so crucial to your existence. And I'm going to reveal three quick ways to balance your root chakra to feel really nice and aligned and grounded. And I will also help you activate your life force energy on your palms so that you can feel the flow of energy all over. And it's, it's a lot of fun. You're going to enjoy this. To join me, go to my seven is a word, my seven chakras.com forward slash live training. That's my seven chakras.com forward slash live training. I'll see you there. All right. So let us welcome our special guest for today, Tom Bunn. So Tom, are you ready to inspire? I hope so. Yes. Because (laughs) having to deal with panic attack can use some inspiration. Absolutely. So retired airline captain and licensed therapist Tom Bunn has worked with fearful flyers for, guess this, over 35 years and many were troubled by panic attacks when in the air having solved that problem tom has turned to ending panic attacks on the ground his new book panic free which i which i have over here an amazing book right here uh leads readers through the steps needed to control panic automatically on the ground as well as in the air so tom Thank you so much for joining me on today's session. Thank you for letting me be on with you. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> so Action Tribe, you might want to listen to this episode till the very end. And here's why over the years, many of you have shared with me that you often experience anxiety or panic attacks and you have certain irrational fears, right? Uh, and this condition affects your health, your ability to travel, especially if you're f- afraid of flying and your entire life because you're not able to make the most out of the opportunities that presents themselves to you every single day. So no matter how hard it has been so far, I want you to listen to the very end because I promise you that you will have some key takeaways from this session that will inspire your life. So are you ready? Let's get started. Uh, Tom, to get started, could you share your favorite inspirational quote and how do you apply that quote in your life? Well, when when you ask me that question in the text you sent, I thought about quotes, but there was something that happened that is probably the most inspirational thing I've ever experienced. And it, it was, not, it was action actually. Yeah. When I was in college, uh, I went up to New York to Union Theological Seminary for a weekend they had for students who were interested in spirituality. And I was walking through the corridors. They have uh, sort of a, uh, the corridors that connect different buildings of Union Theological Seminary, and they have doorways. I was walking with another student who was more experienced in in these matters than, than I was at the time. And um, we came to a door. There was a man standing there. I took him for a janitor. He was very uh, ordinarily dressed. He opened the door for us, and we walked through. The door closed, and he said, do you know who that was? And I said, no. He said, that was Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was one of the two greatest theologians in the U.S. in, in the 20th century. <laughs> it was like, here's this person who was so highly regarded, and he's opening the doors for 
us kids coming through. That was, <laughs> I never forgot that. It's, it's a great lesson, I think, in, in, mm. in what a great person is like. Wonderful, wonderful. That's a really profound observation and astute observation. And that's what I found as well. No matter how high a person rises in seniority in experience and wisdom, the higher they rise, the more they have like a servant approach, right? A mindset for uh, service, a mindset for, you know, yes. supporting no matter mm-hmm. who you are, whether uh-huh. you're a janitor or whether you're, you know, a wealthy individual or maybe a leader, visionary, they treat you in terms of who you are your energy and the potential or the greatness that they see in you for some reason. But thanks a lot for sharing that with us. Uh, and let's start from the very beginning. I mean, we've got so many different fascinating topics to cover on today's episode, but I want to start from the beginning. How did you become okay. an airline captain? What's the story behind that? Well, to tell you the truth, when I was a kid, World War II was going on oh. after it was finished. The people who were in the service came back to this little town I grew up in, North Carolina, a thousand people or so in the town. And the people who got the attention were the pilots. <laughs> and so I thought, gee, I'd like to have some of that. So I got interested in aviation. And then after college, went into the Air Force and went through the training and so on. So it was it was kind of narcissistic, really. <laughs> How do I get some of this attention to all these 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 local heroes we're getting? That's how I got interested in it. I think there may be other factors, but that was one of them. Wonderful. And there's nothing wrong in being inspired and motivated by the amazing pilots, the smart pilots, because I love the uniforms and to be, <laughs> right? And to be yeah. really uh, channeled or inspired to start your career in the same field. I think that is a wonderful uh, thing for anyone to have, whether it's a pilot or an army officer, or maybe like I'm really inspired. I used to be, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut mm-hmm. uh, because I really, was amazed by the type of life they led and to be able to see the blue planet from space. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, coming to your book, what inspired you to write your book? Panic Free, the 10-day program to end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia. Well, after I left the Air Force, I went to work at Pan Am. Okay. And uh, one of the pilots there had started a course on fear of flying, Truman Cummings. He asked me to work with him on that as a volunteer. And I said, Slim, I, I don't want to be around a bunch of crazy people. He says, no, come take a look. And, <laughs> and I'm doing a course at Newark. You can come over and hang out. And I was amazed. Everybody who had this problem with flying that was in his class was very bright and very imaginative. And that's, I think, what gets them into trouble. You can think of a thousand things that can go wrong, and you can put them all in your mind very vividly and suffer from it. Um, so after a couple of years the things that he was offering didn't seem to, well, they didn't work very well. So I tried to set up a separate course, adding some cognitive behavioral therapy to the mix that helped a few people, but still it took years to find something that would stop panic in the air. And frankly, we just stumbled on it. And now that panic can be controlled in the air, uh, I turned to helping people deal with it in day-to-day living. That's the reason for the book coming out now. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, for those who are tuning in right now, for those who are listening right now, what exactly is a panic attack? Well, a panic attack is a situation where you believe something is going on that's life-threatening or very dangerous to you. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when a person is really in danger, we don't call it a panic attack. In this case, a person might have uh, uh, something going on with their heart or they might feel like there's no escape. In fact, that's the second thing about it. You feel like you're in danger and there's no way out of it. That's what causes us to have panic attacks. Got it. Got it. So uh, just wanted to talk about the differences now because I know that there are certain differences and nuances between anxiety, depression, and having a panic attack. Are there like what are yeah. the differences? Well, in, in anxiety, there is a way out, but it, it may be costly. Mm-hmm. For example, I had a client who had learned how to deal with fear of flying and and anxiety and panic on the plane. So he said, well, can this work for me and my job? Mm-hmm. He was having anxiety because he said, when I'm talking with my uh, the people I have working under me and they ask me a question, 
Um, and I don't know the answer. I almost panic. Well, it, it turns out that he had now just become a supervisor. He had changed from his old job, moved to a new location to take this job as a supervisor. In his old job, he was at the same level as the people he worked with. Right. So he was getting signals from them that were being transmitted unconsciously by their face and their voice and their touch, their presence was calming him. You see, this particular person didn't have very much built in to calm him. Mm -hmm. So he was depending on people around him to give him good energy, we might say. Um, but now when he became a supervisor, the people he was working with were his subordinates, they weren't giving him those signals. So he wasn't getting the calming he needed. So we then said, okay, what we need, if you don't have someone who's giving you what you need, you need to build it in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm thinking about times when I, I flew to India and, and some of the people I met there, there was a, a, a man named Ramakrishna Zarathi who taught who, who worked at the uh, hotel that we stayed in. Um, and he, he was a fortune teller. And one day mm. I, when I got to know him, I said, how do how do you plan your life? And he said, well, if I knew the future, I would be able to plan my life. I says, but you're a fortune teller. <laughs> he says, nobody knows the future. I said, oh. well, look, you, you've got people out in your waiting room right now, waiting to come in here for you to tell them their future. He says, look, here's the situation. I know two things. One is my father was a yogi. When he met with people, I used to sit in the corner year after year after year. So somehow I learned to read people. He says, the first thing is I know how to read people. The second thing is I know people don't change. Hmm. So I, I kind of got the idea that he told people's fortunes like you and I might go to a bowling alley, throw a ball down the alley and make a guess about how many pins it's going to be knocked down. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, he also told me that at one point he had been in a documentary that was filmed with all the spiritual leaders in India. And he said that uh, during the day, these people would be filmed talking about their teachings. And then when the cameras were turned off and the, camera lights were turned off. He said at the night, it became an orgy. The people who said to never drink, they were drinking. People who said you shouldn't be having sex, they were having sex. He says, he says, that's why I never formed an organization. I just do what I do on my own. He says, organizations tend to make you corrupt. So I don't know how I got into that, but the, the, <laughs> the thing that I wanted to get to is that we do know that there are people who, when you're with them, people who are respected uh, spiritual leaders. When we're with them, there's something that happens that we feel more peaceful. Now, what's happened that has led to some of what's in the book is research by a man named Stephen Porges. Mm -hmm. When he was in grad school, he stumbled on something, found that when people are with another person who is giving them the right signals that you're physically safe with them and that you're emotionally safe with them. They're not critical. When you're with a person like that, it has an effect on your parasympathetic nervous system, your calming system. It activates the calming system. When the calming system is activated, a nerve called the vagus nerve goes to the heart, slows the heart rate, goes to the lungs, slows their lungs, uh, breathing rate. And it goes to the digestive system and tells the digestive system it can relax and just do what it's supposed to be doing. So as it turns out, many of us don't learn to have a parasympathetic nervous system that operates automatically. So what we tend to do is since we are not calm and peaceful because we got good development of that system when we were very small, we have to control everything. Mm. And I'm sure that many people who, who watch this program are in a situation where they want peace, but they can't find it because they have to control everything. And the people they are controlling don't like that. The situations that they're trying to control, some things we just can't control. 
And when they can't control things so that nothing upsets them, they don't know how to calm down. That, I think, is going to be one of the big helps in this book, is to teach people how they can train their mind to automatically provide the calming they need. Got it, got it. Now, in the context of uh, having an anxiety attack or a panic attack, mm-hmm. what is a hyperarousal? Well, hyperarousal is the result of stress hormones being released. There's a part of the brain called the amygdala. Okay. It sounds like a funny word. It's just a Greek word that means almond. It's like those little nuts that you get at the supermarket. Mm. That's how small the part of the brain is that we have all this trouble from. And it, it plays an important role. It's supposed to let us know if something changes, if right. something unexpected happens, because that could mean danger. It's a very primitive uh, device. Uh, Porges, I mentioned Stephen Porges, he says it's about 200 million years old. Mm. Initially, it was found in reptiles. If you think about dinosaurs, these huge creatures, you would think they might have had a big brain. They had a brain about the size of a dog. Most of their brain involved the amygdala. So the way that the dinosaurs and other reptiles protected themselves was if anything changed, they ran. If Mm. nothing changed, they would hang out. So you can see... There's a lot of things that could happen that they don't need to run from, which they do. When mammals came on the scene, then the brain was larger. Now, when the amygdala fires off due to some change, it does cause the urge to run. But in addition to the urge to run, it activates your high-level thinking, which Mm -hmm. then says, well, hold off on that running. Let me take a look and see if we really need to run. So that's kind of where humans are. So if we can figure out why the amygdala is producing the stress hormones, Mm -hmm. uh, we can say, okay, it's not something I have to run about. But it doesn't necessarily stop the stress. Right. The other part of the brain, the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, can actually calm us down in spite of the fact that we have stress hormones. But that part of the brain requires development. That's the tricky thing. A lot of us don't get that development when we're little kids. Got it, got it. Uh, so is that uh, is that the difference between what's happening uh, inside the brain or the mind of someone who's having a panic attack versus a person who does not experience these panic attacks? Because I'm trying to understand the yeah. difference between, you know, both of both these individuals, right? And, and how their exactly. brain is supporting them to maybe calm them or, you, you know, reduce the adverse effects of, 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 of that panic attack. Right. You see, when a person gets a shot of stress hormones because the amygdala has found something happening yeah. that it's not expected. Okay. You get stress hormones. Yeah. Revs up your heart, revs up your breathing. Why? Because it might be a life threatening situation. So nature's preparing sure. us to run or fight. Okay. But, the parasympathetic nervous system is supposed to calm us down if we can sense that it's not really a danger. Okay. But the revving up system works fine at birth. Every, every baby can scream bloody murder mm-hmm. right from the very, very beginning. That works fine automatically. Yes. It's the calming system that doesn't work automatically. That has to be developed over the first two years of life or so. Mm-hmm. Now, most likely how it develops is that when the child is upset, Mm-hmm. Someone calms it. And this goes on month after month after month. Right. As the child's brain develops, probably starting, this could happen at around 18 months. When the child is upset and is in a separate room from other adults, from, from the adults, gets upset, starts to cry and says, mm-hmm. aha, they're going to hear me crying. They're going to come in and take care of me. So they, the child starts imagining what's going to happen. Happen that the mother, let's say, is going to come in. He's going to see her face, attuned, caring, her soft eyes. And he's going to hear her voice say, honey, what's the matter with you? And he's going to feel something as a result of that in his calming system. Mm -hmm. You see, her eyes are going to activate his calming system. Her voice is going to activate it and her touch. So if this happens, this has been happening, but now he's gotten so he can expect it. So before she gets there, her, his imagination of her calms him before she gets there. Mm. Now, the question is, what happens when she gets there? Does she then reinforce 
his expectation. Does she present her face? Of course she does. But then what else? She speaks to him the way she normally does. Honey, you were just crying. Are you really okay? Well, I'm here. I'd just love to give you hugs. Let me give you a hug anyway. Mm -hmm. Compare this with the other possibility. Right. Mom's busy. She hears the baby cry. She comes in and finds, hey, the the child is fine. And she says, why are you bothering me? Stop Ah. it. And walks away. That doesn't reinforce the program. So for about 60% of us, we are fortunate enough that our expectations were met by our caregivers. And so we built into a, a program that every time we get upset, we automatically calm down. Right. So stress hormones are released. We have a moment of alarm, but immediately we calm down to curiosity. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a person who's subject to anxiety and panic, they get stress hormones and they stay aroused. They don't calm down. One way to talk about it is to think about your cell phone. When your cell phone rings, it's intrusive. It makes noise. You know, we've turned ours off so we don't get intruded on here. Yeah. But uh, when your cell phone rings and you answer it, it stops ringing. So Mm -hmm. what we need is when our amygdala calls us and says, hey, something's going on, Mm -hmm. we need to immediately calm down so we can make a calm judgment about what's going on. A person who doesn't have this mental software stays alarmed and it's kind of like it's kind of like living with a cell phone that rings but when you try to answer it it doesn't stop ringing and you're Mm -hmm. having trying to have life and your conversations with someone with all this noise going on from the stress Mm -hmm. hormones so what we want to do is calm that down all right so we're going to take a few moments to thank our sponsor skillshare Action Tribe, if you have a vision in mind, whether it's launching a new business, getting a promotion at work, or just starting something new, you'll need a new set of skills. And I want to help you get started right away. Let me introduce you to Skillshare, which is an amazing online learning community that has thousands of classes covering a variety of topics on business, creativity, and lifestyle. In fact, I just got done with an amazing class on creating a 90-day business plan and I'm looking forward to this class called Branding Your Business. And because I can access all these classes on my phone, it's really easy and convenient to use. So whether you want to learn how to organize your life, launch your first business or even start your own podcast like us, Skillshare has a class for you. Times have changed. You don't have to enroll in a six-week course at a local college. If you have a phone and 30 to 45 minutes, you can learn a new skill right away. So do me a favor, ignite your inner action taker and don't wait any longer. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today because they've graciously extended an amazing offer for you. Get two months free. That's right. Skillshare is offering my seven chakras listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com com slash action tribe again s k i l l s h a r e dot com slash a c t i o n t r i b e that's skillshare dot com slash action tribe because the truth is that you might just be one skill away wonderful wonderful thanks a lot for okay. explaining <laughs> this uh, i mean it's it's really significant and it's amazing that you're able to trace it back to to childhood and explain this in such an amazing and simple manner because i'm sure there are listeners or viewers are watching and understanding and maybe relating back to their own life uh, you write about the term called social engagement system and how yes. does that work well that that is something that i mentioned stephen porges that is his uh theory and work that he has found that, well, let me, you know, dogs, when dogs meet each other, they sniff each other out. That's how they determine whether they're going to play or fight or walk away of no interest. Okay. We sniff each other out too, but we don't do it. So far as I know with our noses, (laughs) our social engagement, (laughs) unlike the dogs, we use what's happening here in the face. What oh. you hear in the quality of the voice, not necessarily the words, the music. It's the quality of the voice and the body language of the person, possibly touch. So face, voice, and touch are the things that make it possible for us to determine when we meet a person whether this is our way of sniffing them out, whether we're going to walk away 
without any interest, whether we're going to run away because they don't seem safe to be around, or whether this is someone that we might be able to have a partnership of some kind with. Right, right. So is it the is it the human evolutionary mechanism to yeah. sort of calm us down and not uh, waste all of our energy stressing out and re- releasing all these stress hormones? Is is that like an evolutionary mechanism? Well, it is. The the problem is that that the brain in the humans is so large that yeah. uh, we have to be born before it does the development of this system, which makes mm-hmm. us really able to work with other people and other people work with us. You mm-hmm. see, without the, this social engagement system, we simply have to control everything in order mm-hmm. to feel safe. And if we can't control everything, we need to escape to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, now, yeah. a while back, you spoke about the, the vagus nerve, right? Could you, yeah. could you, because exp- I think that is super important, but could you explain the significance of the vagus nerve and also talk about the phenomena of, uh, called vagal breaking? Cause that, that's something you write right. in the book. Yeah. That's Stephen Porges, his discovery. Let, let me tell you a little bit about how he discovered this. Sure. <laughs> when he was in grad school, yeah. he was interested in something called heart rate variability. Okay. What's that? Well, as it turns out, <clears throat> when we breathe in, there's a new supply of oxygen in the brain, yep. and the heart needs to speed up to transport it through the body. But three or four seconds later, most of that new oxygen has been transported. So we breathe out. Does the heart need to keep pumping so hard? No, it can take a little bit of a break. Mm-hmm. Well, what signals the heart to take the break? That's the vagus nerve. Now, oh. Porteous wanted to study how much change there was in breathing in and breathing out with a number of different people because Mm -hmm. he had the notion that the vagus nerve quality of the vagus nerve varied from person to person. And he was quite sure that with premature children, the vagus nerve is, is not operating very well and you could end up with sudden infant death syndrome. So this could have a lot of implications. So he had some volunteers. He hooked up to his equipment and he would then, they would breathe in, their heart rate would go up, and they'd breathe out, and their heart rate would go down. But then there was a surprise. As one of their friends walked by, their heart rate went down. Right. Now, what's going on here? So he got interested in that. <laughs> so it's interesting. Some of the really great discoveries happened by accident. So he was finding that when their friends would come by, mm-hmm. what, 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 what was causing their heart rate to go down? It was activating the vagus nerve in socially. And so there's your social engagement system. It's what we pick up unconsciously. And by the way, he says this is not something you perceive. Yeah. The changes result as a res- in the brain and in the vagus nerve being stimulated and then which calms us. It all happens outside of consciousness. Mm-hmm. The only thing we might be conscious of is we feel comfortable around some people and some people we don't. But sure. there's one more thing. Sometimes we have this phenomenon of feeling our guard let down. Uh-huh. It happens not intentionally. It happens involuntarily. It happens when we're with someone who is signaling us that we have absolutely nothing to be concerned about in their presence. The vagus nerve is fully stimulated and we feel all the stress go out. And, and I'm thinking about some of the spiritual leaders who people say that when they're around them, they feel this great peace. Apparently, those are people who somehow transmit their inner peace to the people around them. Wonderful, wonderful. This is really fascinating. Uh, and thanks a lot for sharing that uh, as well, uh, because I've heard so much research and people talking about the, the vagus nerve and how it helps with, you know, with calming you down. But talk to us about the traditional approach now. What is the traditional approach to a panic attack or maybe curing a panic attack or reducing a panic attack? And why is that not effective? Why is that not an effective uh, solution? Um, well, f- for years now, we have been in an era where cognitive behavioral therapy has been the primary therapy used. And it, it's, it can be quite effective for certain things. But yeah. the problem with panic is, is that when a person starts to panic, mm-hmm. they're overwhelmed. Yeah. So now 
is this the time when you say, well, now that I'm overwhelmed, I need to add in my little technique that's supposed to calm me down. <laughs> it would be great if you could do it, but yeah. it's hard to pull that up. So uh, what cognitive generally is able to help people do is to help them learn that panic attack's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And if you can begin to relax about the fact that you're having a panic attack and, and not worry so much about it, that's helpful, but that doesn't satisfy everybody. It's a, a lot of people say, okay, so it won't kill me, but I still really, it's awful experience. So what we found when dealing with flying is that having a panic attack on an airplane was one of the main problems people were worried about. And it was obvious that cognitive wasn't working. Breathing exercises, when you breathe out, of course, yes, you do calm down, but you have to breathe back in. So that didn't solve the panic problem on the plane. Um, so actually, the first thing that happened was completely by accident. Um, I was, there were other people working on something that would work automatically. It became clear that we had to find something to work automatically if we were going to stop panic because you can't use your mind when you have panic. You've got to have something that will work without your intellect. Um, a therapist down in Washington was using something she called thought stopping. She said, put a rubber band on your wrist every time you have an anxiety producing thought, snap the rubber band, and uh, you'll inhibit that thought in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay, well, it makes sense. But I thought, eh, giving yourself pain, that's kind of crude. Maybe we could try something a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe, well, I had a person who ran marathons, and I said, okay, I'm going to mention a word about flying, and as soon as I mention it, I want you to go step, 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 and take you back to the marathon. So I'd say, okay, the plane's taking off. She'd go step, step, step. The plane's landing. So we did. We broke it down to a couple of dozen different things about the flight. She did okay. So I thought, okay, thought redirection is, is a, is going to be helpful for some people at least. So I had a client and it, this was a phone session and she said, I'm going to link it to nursing my child. Mm. And I'm glad it was a phone session because if she had read my face, she probably wouldn't have gone along with what she was planning to do. She says, I'm going to link it to nursing my child. And I thought to myself, you're going to get on the plane and think you're never going to see your child again. You think you're going to think your plane's going to crash. It's not going to work. But somehow I went along with it. She called back a couple of weeks later. Absolutely perfect flight. Not one bit of anxiety at all. I thought, wow, that's amazing. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) So it happened a few more times over a couple of years. And then I realized there's something special about linking or redirecting thoughts to nursing. I didn't realize that what we were doing was linking flying to nursing. And just like Pavlov's dogs, he rang a bell, fed the dogs, rang a bell, fed the dogs. Mm-hmm. After a while, he just rang a bell. The dogs salivated, even though there's no food. So yep. what was happening was the airplane was triggering recollection of nursing the child. It turns out when you nurse a child, you produce a massive amount of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Oxytocin shuts the amygdala down. So by linking flying to nursing, she produced oxytocin when she was flying. Her amygdala, which normally would react being on the plane to noises, to motions, and so on, it wasn't working. It just stopped giving her stress hormones, so she was fine. This was something, this, this fact that nursing produces oxytocin and shuts the fear system down was something discovered by Sue Carter, who's a big expert on uh, oxytocin in the U.S. So as it turns out, um, we had f- a way that if a, if a person could produce oxytocin, we could link that Pavlovian kind of psychology to being on the plane. So we had that system. We could prevent the release of stress hormones. So to bring it to panic, if a person has difficulty uh, in a subway or in an MRI or high places or bridges, you could take one of those experiences. Let's say it's bridges. Mm-hmm. You could take heading toward the bridge and imagine that the baby that you're nursing, you're, someone is holding a picture by the baby's face of approaching a bridge. And then the next picture would be on the bridge and the next would be halfway across the bridge and three quarters of the way across the bridge and off the bridge. So that all the time you're on the bridge, you're producing oxytocin. So we can do that with anything where we know the source of the anxiety. But with the addition of what 
Porges has discovered, <clears throat> instead of just stopping the release of stress hormones, we can override the, the stress hormones by activating the vagus nerve. How? By being with a person who is calming to us or having that person in our mind linked to the challenge. There was some research a couple of months ago done at the University of Arizona where they took 102 people, all of whom were in committed romantic relationships, and <clears throat> they put them individually, one by one, under some stress, the stress <laughs> putting your foot into 38-degree water. <laughs> Doesn't sound terrible, but a couple of people dropped out. <laughs> so what they wanted to do was, while under stress, to measure their heart rate and blood pressure and so on to see how much stress it caused and whether different things could reduce the stress. So the first group, they had three groups. The first group, when their foot was in the water, when they were being stressed, to try to think about what was going on during their day to try to distract themselves. Right. So they, they looked at that possibility. The second group, they said, when your foot is in the water, think about that person you're in a romantic relationship with. The third group actually had the person present. Mm -hmm. Now you would figure, okay, the third group is going to be getting the most benefit, but it yeah. turns out that the second group was just as good. Having the person mm -hmm. in mind gives as much protection as having the person with you. So this helps us understand that, yes, you, we do need other people to activate our calming system. But if we can bring that person in to our mind, even though they're not physically there, face, voice, and touch, that will calm us. So what I could suggest for your listeners today is that for the next few days, Bring to mind a person. Uh, first of all, you have to identify a person who who, who gives you the right signals. So yeah. ideally, it would be a person who you felt your guard let down with. But if you haven't had that experience with a person or you can't identify who that might be, mm -hmm. then just think of a person who is not judgmental, someone mm -hmm. easygoing, a peaceful kind of person. Sure. Okay. So as soon as you get alarmed or alerted or aroused by something, immediately before you do anything about it, Bring that person to mind. Bring, imagine they walk into the room, say hello to you and come over and give you a touch or a hug, depending on what kind of relationship you have. So you see arousal, then you're practicing arousal is causing you to bring them to mind, face, voice and touch, which will cause you to calm down. Just like the baby we were talking about at 18 months imagines the mother arriving that calms the baby. But if that program didn't get reinforced, early in life, we can build it in now. And just in two or three days, if you practice it every time you get aroused, bring in your face, voice, and touch of your friend. You can train your mind to automatically calm yourself every time you get revved up. Wonderful. And when yeah. you shared that, what comes to my mind is um, this very popular quote or this finding that the mind does not know the difference between something that you vividly imagine yes. in your mind and something that is actually in front of you. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the idea why we feel so afraid, right? I mean, when we mm. go to movies, people pay a lot of money for watching horror movies, but yeah. it's just a screen. But people yeah. still feel the same level of danger or uh, you know, uh, fear, like as if there was a real uh, monster or maybe a zombie or whatever that might be. <laughs> and you have the, I think the entire industry, like a lot of news agencies, they prey on people's fear as yeah. well. Yeah. And that's yeah. not supposed to happen because people are chronically in that state of anxiety and worry about what might happen. But the truth is, like, I guess you're alluding that we aren't in such dangerous saber tooth like situations in a daily life. <laughs> well, the, the thing is the amygdala responds to images. How is it supposed to know whether what's right. in your mind's eye or is different than what's in your physical eye? Hmm. So yes, we, if we see something that's a real danger, sure we react yeah. to it, but the amygdala reacts to imagination as well. And that goes back to the thing we were starting to talk about just at the beginning. What is panic? Oftentimes it's something that's not dangerous at all, but yeah. we believe it is. And because we believe it is, we feel we must escape it. And if our escape is blocked, we panic. 
Got it. Now, now in all of this, you've also written about the term called unconscious procedural memory. Yeah. Right? So what does that, yeah. that have to do with you know <laughs> panic? <laughs> well, it, the, if, we, if we go back to the idea of what can you do when a panic attack starts, mm-hmm. uh, probably nothing because you're overwhelmed. Yeah. So think about people who do really high stress jobs, people like firemen, policemen, people who work in emergency rooms as doctors or, or technicians or nurses. When they're under these life threatening situations, their mind is overwhelmed too. Mm-hmm. How do they operate? How do they perform? Before they are put into these situations, they go through repetitive training. They say, okay, when you're in the emergency room, somebody's going to come in. They're going to have this problem with their heart. What do you do? You grab the paddles, you put them here, you put them here, and then you push this button and it shocks them. And maybe that's going to work. If it doesn't do it again. So that's an example. There's a set step by step by step procedure. And the people go through these steps and train their mind to absorb the steps so they can be carried out automatically. Mm-hmm. Now, the the benefit particularly of this is this part of the brain, unconscious procedural memory is not troubled by stress hormones. It operates fine under stress. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example for most people about unconscious procedural memory in their own lives, most people drive. When they yeah. first learned to drive, it took, all of their concentration to be able to do it, particularly mm-hmm. if it was a stick shift. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but anyway, once you started driving, the process of that activity being absorbed by your unconscious procedural memory was going on all the time you were practicing. And that's why it got easier. Your unconscious procedural memory was picking up a little part of the driving task. And finally it picked up all of it. So mm-hmm. that now when you drive your car, you can have a conversation. You're, you're operating on autopilot as you talk with someone, uh, or think about what you're going to do when you get to de- your destination. Um, so unconscious procedural memory is something that has a huge amount of capacity. Uh, another example would be if you go to learn ballroom dance, your teacher might give you, tell you, move your feet about six or eight times. You can hold that in your conscious mind. That's about the limit. So you'd repeat it and you store it in your unconscious procedural memory. Next time you learn six or eight more steps, you store those. And after a few weeks of storing these dance steps in your mind, you can have it all flow together. And with your dance partner, you can move around the room to the music with maybe several dozen steps, which you could not possibly do consciously. You can do it unconsciously. So unconscious procedural memories, it's an amazing, Adam, did you do any sports? Uh, I actually, I mean, I wouldn't really call going to the gym a sport, but I go to the gym a lot. <laughs> I'm not actively involved in sports. <laughs> well, if you, any, maybe you've seen tennis, perhaps, you know that I do. people yeah. serve. And so it's an extremely complex maneuver. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is you have to learn to do it without thinking. Yeah. Uh, golfers have to learn how to do their swing without, without thinking. So the unconscious procedural memory makes it possible mm. for us to do a lot of things. So what we want to do is by bringing in face, voice and touch for the next few days, every time we get stressed, unconscious procedural memory absorbs that and will before a few days, just in a few days, we'll absorb that and take over it. And every time you get revved up, you calm down. It's kind of like your cell phone when it rings and you answer it, you calm down. Got it. And that is a step-by-step procedure that, that people can use. So sort of over a period of time, like in your case, I think 10 days, build that unconscious uh, procedural memory. Yes. Right? Yep. Build it into unconscious procedural memory so that automatically when you get revved up, you get calmed down. Got it. Well, this is really powerful. Uh, so so uh, how can we use this phenomena of the unconscious uh, procedural <laughs> memory to transform other areas of your life, of our life? Well, I... I think anything that we want to be able to master uh, mm-hmm. that has some complexity, yeah. if we are patient enough to do it piece by piece and step by step, we we might have to break it down into segments like ballroom dancing. You yeah. do first eight, then the next eight, and then the next eight until you put them together. Um, 
So it really becomes a question about what a person, what a person's goals are and going, well, it's like they say, what gets you to Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, practice. It's, it's that building into unconscious procedural memory that allows a person to become a masterful pianist or whatever they would like to accomplish. Wonderful. Well, that's really powerful. I mean, for Action Tribe viewers listening, watching right now, remember that uh, <clears throat> key to developing this is firstly, like you mentioned, have that vision in your mind, right? Imagine what it. you want to accomplish. Break what it do down into pieces. Break it down. Repeat it again and again and again. It takes time. You may think you're never going to be able to do it. Right. Well, if you if you try to do the whole thing to begin with, probably not. But you break it down piece by piece by piece. Memorize this piece, memorize the next piece and the next piece. And then after some time, it all comes together. Wonderful. And based on what you've shared today, based on what we have discussed today, what is that one action step that you'd like to recommend for our listeners, especially those who might be going through some anxiety or some uh, panic attacks from time to time? What is that one action step that you'd like to recommend? Well, that that's the the steps that we just were talking about for the next few days. Every, first of all, identify a person who's peaceful, a person who, when you're with them, you have no concern. You don't have to worry about what you're thinking. You don't have to worry about what you're saying. They accept you, period. No question about it. That's the kind of person who activates your calming system. And we, we talked about the, the phrase, I think, and didn't cover it, vagal breaking. Porges mentions that if you have a car with an automatic transmission and you put your foot solidly on the brake, mm-hmm. you can press on the accelerator pedal. The car's not going to go anywhere. The brake in a car will override the stress hormones. Mm-hmm. The same thing is true for us. Our vagus nerve can override stress hormones. The question is, how do we activate that brake pedal? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm suggesting in the next few days. Every time you feel stress, use it. In fact, Look for it. Try to pick it up at its lowest level instead of trying to ignore it. Pick it up at its lowest level. Imagine your friend walks in, says hello to you, and comes over and gives you a hug or a reassuring touch. That can transform a person's life. Action Tribe, to access the show notes for today's episode, visit my7chakras.com forward slash 299. That's my7chakras.com forward slash 299. Just one away from 300. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. This is an amazing quote by Helen Keller. Action Tribe, the statement is so true and it's probably my favorite quotes of all because it speaks to the idea that there will be ups and downs and there'll be challenges and difficulties and you will have obstacles as well that seem to come out of nowhere when least expected. But if it weren't for these ups and downs, then life would have been really uh, monotonous <laughs> and boring, right? Because the truth is that life was meant to be an adventure and you must treat it as, treat it as such because if you do, you will at once, like we're learning today, feel excited, get thrilled, be ready, calm down and get ready for those magical moments that really await you in your magnificent life. So Tom, uh, could you talk to us about a life uh, or a time in your life when you experienced a challenge or a major life challenge. How did you go through that situation? And then what did you do to overcome it? Well, when you pose that question in the text you sent me, I I think that the biggest challenge I ever faced was when I was flying fighters in the Air Force. Uh, the, The plane I was assigned to fly was the first supersonic jet fighter, and they really didn't know how to build a safe one. Uh, one, <laughs> one out of three of those planes crashed. Uh, oh. it, it, so every day when you get on your parachute over your shoulder and your clipboard and your helmet, you walk out to the ramp where the planes are, you mm-hmm. see 30 or so planes sitting there and you know, some of those planes are like a bomb with a fuse already lit. And you don't know if that's going to be the one you have today or the, or you're going to have a good one. Mm-hmm. That's just a roll of the dice. So the question is, what are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to do this thing, even though it's a possibility that it might end your life. And this sounds like a strange thing, but when you make the commitment that you're going to do something, period, you can, there's something about the way that the, 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 
cognitive part of the brain works, that when you make a commitment that you're going to do something, absolutely, no matter what, with mm-hmm. no secret ways out of it, that commitment sends a message to the amygdala telling it to butt out. Mm. I'm going to do this. It's a done deal. That can bring, bring peace. That's it's, it, it, it's not necessarily for everybody, but for a person who is sitting on the fence about things, um, if, if they can find a way to make a commitment that they're going to do the thing that they want to do, and take their chances that they'll fail, that they'll not fail, uh, that they may be humiliated. No matter what it is that you're worried about that's keeping you from going ahead with your plan, if you decide, I'm going to do it and take my chances, you send a signal to the amygdala that gives you a, a sudden feeling of peace. Mm-hmm. So based on what you just shared, if you had to share one major life lesson mm-hmm. for our listeners, what would that be? Well, commitment is a thing that can quiet us down, but that's not something that every person is going to be able to do mm-hmm. straight out of the gate. The other right. thing is to find a person who is a peaceful person who can offer their face, voice and touch as the way you can teach yourself to calm yourself mm-hmm. and practice it. Once again, practice it every time you feel revved up for the next few days bring that person to mind. Now it's nice if they have, you have them with, with you, but this way you can build them inside. So they're psychologically active inside you. Got it. Now I wanted to ask you this question because you mentioned that uh, Mm -hmm. you used to fly these supersonic jets, right? And they were dangerous. They were not, not all of them were safe. So what was it, what was it like? What was the feeling for you to be inside the cockpit high above the ground, the earth below you, at supersonic speeds, <laughs> what, what was the feeling like? What, what were you going through? Well, the main thing that you're doing is trying to make sure that you're getting everything done that, and, and you're trying to think ahead of the things that could go wrong. Right. You see, you're going, what, 500 miles an hour. What is that? Eight, eight miles a minute, I suppose, uh, something like that. So you have to, you can't wait until the plane is where it is going. No. You've got to think ahead of the plane. You've got to be ahead of the plane all the time. So that's what you, it's, it's not, it's not a pleasurable thing. It's like you've got to be thinking all the time. And, and, and along that line, this, this might be surprising. You have to question everything you do before you do it. Um, I, in training, uh, when I was in training in the Air Force, we were training in a two seater. My instructor was in the front of the plane. I was in the back and I was under what's called a hood, a little tent that goes over you. So you can't see outside. You have to fly using instruments. And so we were doing a simulated approach to a runway for a landing Mm -hmm. and I was doing it. And he said, how are you doing? I said, fine. He said, are you sure? I said, Mm -hmm. yes. He says, okay, I got the plane. Come out from under the hood. I came out from under the tent and I saw the runway was nowhere near. I saw off to the right telephone poles (laughs) sticking up higher than we were. He didn't say a word. He didn't need to. I knew I had, (laughs) if he hadn't taken the plane, if I'd been doing it for real, I'd have been dead in a few seconds. So one of the things you learn as a pilot is you have to question yourself, everything you do. And I once said to a psychiatrist friend that, you learn to question everything that you do. And he said, what a terrible way to have to live such a burden. I said, not really. It's, it's the way you get to survive as a pilot. So Mm. I think that the tricky thing about it is, is how much do you question yourself? Mm -hmm. We had a pilot at, at Pan Am who was a crew member, volunteer crew member on an ocean racing yacht owned by the president of IBM. And the, the, the yacht had a professional captain. All the crew members would come in for a race. They were volunteers. And the, this captain who was one of the volunteers, he told me that when the skipper of the boat, the Palawan, it was called, uh, got his crew together for the first bit of their training, he would say, look, all of you guys are experienced sailors. 
you're going to see things that could be a danger. You're going to have some ideas about things we could do to win the race. And so here's the deal. I want to hear from you if you have something that you're concerned about Mm -hmm. once. I want to hear it once. You tell me twice and you're off the boat. So what I think we need to do is question ourselves, but question ourselves fully and get that particular question dealt with and dismissed so we can go to the next one. And I think what causes so much distress for people sitting on the fence, they just keep questioning themselves again and again and again and never finishing it. It needs to be done thoroughly and finished so you can go to the next step. Got it. Thanks a lot for sharing, Tom. Action Tribe, if you are watching this session right now, make sure that you add a comment. Make sure that you share this post because this is very important information. There are a lot of people who are going through some anxiety or who are going through some uh, bouts of depression or maybe they experience panic attacks from time to time. And this is a breakthrough. Right. And this is something that everyone can do. So make sure you share this post so that we can spread this information around the world. And if you're a regular listener, then you would know that the information that is shared is very practical and applicable to everyday life. I don't want to butter things up and pretend like I don't experience challenges because I do. Uh, spirituality is not just recognizing and feeling grateful for the good things in your life, but also facing the challenges and the darkness that might exist in your life too, because it's important to be honest with ourselves and realize that only then can we change and can we improve ourselves, right? Like you need to keep questioning your circumstances and where you are right now. So I ask you to right now awaken your inner warrior and get ready to face head on your obstacles and difficulties because a grand and beautiful journey lies ahead of you. For as the amazing author Polo Coelho once said, when we least expect it, life sets us a challenge to test our courage and willingness to change. At such a moment, there is no point in pretending that nothing has happened or in saying that we are not ready. The challenge will not wait. Life does not look back. A week is more than enough time for us to decide whether or not to accept our destiny. So no matter what you're going through, decide, <laughs> like we're discussing today, decide and get this book because it is really, really useful. Loads of insights are shared over here. We could not do, you know, justice to the entire book, but then uh, the next step would be to learn these skills for yourself in terms of what you can do to overcome the panic. Now we are at our last round for today, which is called the wisdom round. So Tom, are you ready? Yes. The whole set. Great. So what is, <laughs> <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I, uh, I don't know that it was anything more than what I got with my flight instructor. He would put me into situations where I would have to learn and then would intervene before I made a terrible mistake so I could learn from my mistakes. It's amazing when you have an instructor like that. Got it. If you could turn back time and spend one hour with somebody who is currently living or maybe dead, who would it be? <sighs> I, you know, I, I mentioned Reinhold Neuber. He would be certainly one of those people I'd like to know more about. He was a remarkable person in the way he interacted with and, and, and respected everyone, regardless of what their life had position put them in. Got it. And what is that one thing that you do these days in the morning or maybe in the evening before going to sleep that has really improved the quality of your life? I hate to tell you that the best thing that <laughs> happens in the morning is I go downstairs and I have a timer that turns on my espresso maker. Mm -hmm. And I make coffee for my wife, Maria, and myself espresso is it's it's absolutely better than you can get at Spar starbucks it's <laughs> we really got this perfected <laughs> so every morning i can uh, you know when you wake up and you think yeah should i really get up i think no. yeah i'm about to have that cup of coffee that is so good so that's <laughs> amazingly enough one of the best <laughs> things i could recommend for anybody who yeah who, who enjoys uh things that are delicious 
Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I spend a lot of time at Starbucks because I can get my work done. Uh, but in terms of coffee, you, you yeah. know, uh, I, I don't think they have the best coffee. They don't have good frappuccinos from time to time. Yeah. But again, if you want espresso, you got you to get a machine. You got to make it. Yeah. It's a ritual, right? It's a routine. It takes yeah. a couple of seconds. You feel great. And yeah, espresso is amazing. I want to get a machine. I don't have a machine right now, but I do want to get a machine. Uh, because I appreciate good quality coffee. Some of my friends have the machine and I have it from time to time. It is different. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's, it's, uh, magical to be able to spend, uh, quality time with your significant other in the morning and, and just be able to sip that, uh, uh, that coffee. I have mushroom coffee these days. I really love it. Uh-huh. Uh, reishi mushroom, chaga yeah. mushroom. You know, you have it in the morning. You're, you're, you're focused. You're, you're in flow. You feel so good. Mm. Uh, make sure you check that out. Okay. Yeah. Four Sigmatic. That's a, that's a company that specializes in these, okay. uh, mushroom type of coffees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but check it out. Action Tribe, uh, uh, hold on because you've still got <laughs> a few minutes left. Uh, Tom, if you could recommend one book for our listeners. I gave that be? a, I gave that a lot of thought. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the, the first thing was I started thinking about what seems like the most important book. If you had a puzzle, and you were putting it together and you mm-hmm. got down to the last piece and it was missing. That would be the most important one. So, but, but all five, if it was a 500 piece puzzle that you're putting together, all would be important, but there's one particularly important book. It's written by, uh, Ian Gilchrist called the master and his emissary. He wrote this book over, he's a psychiatrist. He wrote this book over many, many years. Um, and what he tells us is that, everything comes in on the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. Then the left side of the brain sort of takes over and takes credit (laughs) for what's Mm -hmm. happening and analyzes it and puts it into categories and thinks that that's very important and sort of claims that it's the, it's the, it's the big important part of the brain where really he's saying that it's really the intuitive feeling right side of the brain that's really important and the right side of the brain can acknowledge both the presence of the right side and the left side the left side doesn't even think the right side exists in fact uh, I do have a screensaver right now it shows the brain and the left and the right side of the brain uh, the master and the emissary right is that yes the book? that's the awesome. book so Action Tribe, if you would like to receive your own book, free book, uh, audible.com is offering Action Tribe one free audio book download so that you can get to check out their amazing service. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the truth is that listening is the new reading. And if you're a podcast listener, if you're a part of our community, then um, you know it, right? Uh, and I definitely love listening to the various audible books that I have on my phone. And in most cases, the author himself or herself reads out the book to you. Not quite sure if the master and the emissary are available or audible, but uh, you can check it out because if you go to my seven chakras.com forward slash free book, my seven chakras.com forward slash free book, you can select any book of your choice for free. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, tell us one thing that you are really, really grateful for today and how, how can our listeners find you, know about you and uh, maybe get the book as well. This book, amazing book. Well, I, I tell you the something I am truly grateful for. Two years ago, my wife had a stroke and for some time she was in the hospital and her right side was not moving at all. And of all the things I've done, flying fighters and racing cars and things like that, the most thrilling thing I've ever seen in my life was when she lifted her hand for the first time. Mm -hmm. So for me, every day when we go out and she's using a walker and she can walk, even though she can't walk without it, it is an amazingly satisfying experience. And I just want to point out one more thing. I live in a town in Connecticut, Easton, mm. E-A-S-T-O-N. This is where Helen Keller lived. Wow. This is really? the town. Yes, her house is just three miles away from here. That's crazy. I mean, the thing <laughs> is that when I when I select my quotes, right, and when I select the questions, I sort of psychically try to tune in yeah. to my guest and the listeners, and it's fascinating how that works because 
we, you know, we've selected the right court. Uh, you know, the listeners are like, you know, I just, I was, uh, this is the information that I needed at this point. And it's crazy how divine timing works, but it just works. And, uh, so thanks a lot for sharing. Uh, it's called, uh, you, you, this, is it called Easton? How do you spell it? E- E-A-S-T-O-N. E-A-S-T-O-N. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, so uh, once again, how, how do listeners get to know you? Well, uh, for fear of flying, we have a very simple website, fearofflying.com. Mm-hmm. And to find the book, the book is panic free. Uh, so we have a website, panicfree.net, not com, but panicfree.net that gives information about the book. Wonderful. So we'll make sure that we have all those links in the show notes. Action Tribe, if you're still listening, it means that you really enjoyed today's episode. And if you've experienced a shift and you've learned something new today, or you just feel better, then please support our podcast. I've created a donate button so that you can donate whatever amount you like, $7.77. Or if you're a long-time listener, something more than that as well. The link you need is my7chakras.com forward slash support. That's my7chakras.com forward slash support. My email is is aj at my7chakras.com. I'd love to connect with you and learn about your impressions, your experiences, your thoughts, or even if you'd like to pass on a a compliment to our guest over here, Tom. I'll be happy to forward it to Tom and uh, take a screenshot of this episode if you're listening it to your or watching it on your mobile uh, and tag me on Instagram. My handle is at my7chakras, at my7chakras, so that I will share your story with our global community. And finally, Tom, thank you so much for coming on our show, talking to us about how to let go of fear and anxiety and panic attacks and really teaching us and how, you know, how the mind works, how humans have evolved over, you, you know, thousands and thousands of years and breaking it all down for us because this can be a pretty complex topic. It can be really difficult to understand, but you've made it simple. You've made it easy for all our listeners to comprehend and take action. And thank you for taking us one step closer to a human revolution. Thank you so much. And, and, and if your listeners want to email a question, then you pass it on. I'll definitely respond. Thank you. For Would you me. like to share your own email? Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. it's, well, it's a little complicated. It's Tom at fearofflying.com. Yeah. T-O-M. Tom at fearofflying.com. And I can certainly get back to you about any questions you have about whether it's flying or, or anxiety and panic. Sure. Great. We'll add that thank email you. as well. So everyone's saying thank you. Amina saying really enjoyed. Thank you. AJ, you are great too. Awesome. Great huh. wisdom from Tom Bun. Thank you. Powerful insights. Uh, we have Elvira who's saying thank you. And these are just the live listeners. We're going to have many thousands and thousands of people listening to this show once we officially release it. But thanks, Tom. Have a great thank day. Thank you. You too. We'll talk to you yes. soon. Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at My7Chakras.com. That is My S-E-V-E-N Chakras.com.